Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Presumption of Innocence, a podcast brought to you by the White Collar Criminal Defense and Regulatory Compliance Practice at Fox Rothschild. I'm your host today. My name is Matt Adams. I'm a partner with the firm and co-chair of the White Collar Criminal Defense and Regulatory Compliance Practice. Today, I have a terrific trio of guests with extensive experience in the banking and financial industry regulatory space who are going to help me unpack the Russia sanctions. As many of you know, on February 24th, 2022, Russia invaded the sovereign nation of Ukraine and the financial sanctions regime that has followed is quite honestly unprecedented in its scope and breadth. Today, I'm joined by Peter Kim, David Hazen, and Mark Zyberswig. Each of them in their own right brings extensive knowledge from the OFAC, BSA, and AML regulatory space. Peter is the practice leader of Witham's Financial Crimes Advisory Consultant Practice. He specializes in BSA, AML, OFAC, and all those types of matters for banks and other non-banking financial institutions. And then David and Mark come to us from the banking industry themselves. David is currently a VP and the BSA AML OFAC officer at Atlantic Community Bankers Bank. Mark is vice president of third-party oversight at Metropolitan Commercial Bank. As you can tell, we are really blessed to have some people with some really extensive knowledge on exactly these, how these reg- regulatory regimes are taking shape in the real world. And, and Peter, I want to get started with you. And just how, how does the current Russian sanction regime impact the regular businesses and individuals? We've heard a lot about what it means to Russian oligarchs and those in the inner circle of Vladimir Putin, but how does it impact U.S. businesses and individuals on a day-to-day basis? That's a great question, Matt. So in terms of the Russian sanctions, in, in light of what has happened, what we're seeing now is the OPEC sanctions, a regime that existed before for Russian individuals and the various sectoral sanctions were targeted. Now with the actions in Ukraine and uh, willingness of the White House to do so much more than to levy individual and sectoral sanctions, the sanctions regime that exists now for Russia, it's broader. It's as heavy as we, we have ever seen on par with the sanctions regime that we have with Iran, with North Korea and some of the other folks that are uh, deemed enemies to the state. The White House has decided to step up its game and rather than to commit boots on the ground, they are taking economic warfare, basically. And in terms of how it impacts everyone else, the flow of business that existed between the U.S. and the world with Russia has, in essence, come to whether it's doing business transactions with entities and persons that are on the OFAC list, using financial institutional transactions to send or receive funds from Russia, all that has deemed currently not permissible by OFAC. So it has caused a economic blockade of Russian individuals, parties, and uh, bringing all the economic might of uh, the U.S. financial systems to bear. Now, 
You mentioned that this is unprecedented. How specifically does this compare to sanctions against Russia in the past? Now, sanctions against Russia are not a new thing in the U.S. economy. And I'm sure when we get to our other guests, Mark and David, we're going to hear about what that's like on a day-to-day basis, living with that in a financial services industry. But how specifically does this compare to prior sanctions regimes against Russia? Broadly speaking, Matt, they were not permitting certain transactions such as equity or loan deals or individuals that the White House deemed to be permissible enough to add to those back sanctions. Now they're going after people and parties getting closer to the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin that administrations in the past has ever gone. Just recently, we've learned that two of Vladimir Putin's daughters were added to the Putin list. And all the oligarchs that have supported the Kremlin and, and Vladimir Putin for decades have also been added to the list. And by putting the pressure on those that are closest to the Kremlin and the leadership there, White House is really stepping up its game and putting specific targets to people that were not part of the sanctions regime in the past. So the noose is tightening. The economic damages that are inflicted is unprecedented because it, it, we have never seen anything like this before. That's a good segue over to our, our friends, David and Mark, from the banking side of this. David, would you concur with Peter that this is unprecedented from where you sit? Yeah, first, thanks, Matt, for letting me join this. And yeah, I would 100% agree with Peter's assessment that this is unprecedented. So I think partly what makes this different is the sheer magnitude of the amount of sanctions, the amount of changes per day almost, and the amount of industries that are being targeted by the U.S., its allies, Canada, Australia, Uh, the UK and the EU, the total agreement across the board to unify and have this amount of sanctions from the time that this started in February till today. And as Peter pointed out, Putin's daughters just joined the SDM list. I believe it was two days ago. As long as this keeps going forward, it seems as if OFAC and the White House continue to push forward with more and more sanctions, targeting more and more industries. I think the only issue hasn't necessarily been jointly targeted is the energy industry, and that's specifically because of the reliance in uh, Europe on Russia energy. So in your role as an OFAC officer and also somebody responsible for BSA and AML functions, you come to this background with law enforcement background. You worked as a police officer. You've worked as an, an IRS CID investigative analyst. Your bank. Atlantic Community Bankers Bank is in a unique situation as a banker's bank. For those that are not familiar with that concept, why don't you inform them what that is? Sure. So it is a unique business model. So we are a correspondent bank that is only chartered to bank federally regulated community banks and credit unions. So our primary Bread and butter is providing correspondent services to those banks and specifically uh, domestic and international wire. We are not a U.S. dollar clearer, so we're not um, banking anybody overseas, but there's a specific amount of risk processing these types of transactions cross-border overseas. 
So you're faced in that role with the most expansive sanction regimes that we've ever seen. What do you do? Yeah, I think so. As this started to boil up and, and before the sanctions actually were released, all compliance officers are paying attention. You're hearing the administration talk about how they're going to roll out substantial sanctions packages to try to war off Putin from going into Ukraine. I think as it starts to unfold and then it actually unfolds, there's a lot of sleepless nights. If you're trying to make sure that your filtering systems are working appropriately, being updated appropriately, uh, and capturing these new names that are being added. On top of that, you need to understand as an OFAC officer where your actual Russian risks are within your respective institution. So for us, the, the biggest amount of risk lied with our wire business, our international wire business. So you're trying to make sure that for me specifically, 300 plus institutions that I'm banking understand the environment. I'm sure everybody was paying attention, but it's my job to make sure that they understand the, the new rules and regulations for ACBB. So we continually sent out communications to our client base to let them know. The way that this unfolded is there were specific directives that block specific items and entities and financial institutions. And then there's what they call a wind down period. So there was a wind down period for other activities. And so at ECBB, in my role, I'm independent. So as this started to get um, increasingly more substantial with the amount of sanctions that were coming out, you have to start to look around and see how much risk are you willing to accept? And so at this time, a lot of the organizations started to cut off their business in Russia, specifically the big fours and MasterCard and some of these other large or organizations. So as things started to change and unravel, I decided as in my role that the best way to handle this was to restrict Russia and Ukraine temporarily until this either changes or becomes more permanent. And so I went to my board of directors and, and made that decision and informed our clients that we would no longer process transactions to Russia and Ukraine. So it was just easier to shut it all down. It became easier to shut it all down based on the fact that the, the sanctions continued to get more and more each day. They keep changing almost every day. We're getting more and more updates on this. So in order to manage that risk, you got to understand if you're going to keep the doors open there, you're potentially putting yourself in the crosshairs of a violation with OFAC. And so you don't want to be in that position. Obviously we have the software and the filtering programs to mitigate those risks, but at some point you have to decide how much risk you're willing to accept. And I think that was the amount of risk we were willing to accept is this is not going to be over anytime soon. It's getting more expansive and we're just going to restrict it. Let's go over to Mark for a moment. I know Mark, you have more than 25 years of experience in this sector. Do you concur with your colleagues that this is perhaps unprecedented in its scope? Thanks, first and foremost, thank you for inviting me to this wonderful uh, podcast on a very important topic in this day and age. I do concur with Peter and David that this is certainly unprecedented. 
The last time we saw major OFAC sanctions was back in Crimea when President Obama enforced that in 2015. The Crimea region of the vast region of sanctions, and they were quite comprehensive. And this is definitely a, a step up or a, a higher level of comprehensive sanctions going now and point forward. We have not seen something like this in ever since OFAC been monitoring for a number of years. To add to what David has mentioned from the day-to-day -day operations, my bank is not the risk-averse type of bank where we do businesses with traditional credit funds, unions, banks, and so forth. My area of expertise is in the FinTech program manager space where we do have clients who work in fintech payment processing, domestic and international, prepaid debit cards, and so forth. We do have clients who have Russia-sanctioned ties as well as Ukraine. And what to our what David has mentioned is what we did at our bank. We made sure the educational level of these no OFAC sanctions for Russia were discussed on a daily basis, along with senior management, and of course, the board. And we came to a position where uh, client activity would cease with these uh, Russia and, and uh, Ukrainian ties to those particular regions as of now and indefinitely. That has been a decision that has been made. I just want to make a quick note that we are examining the ownership of all our client relationships of now. And, and in particular, any clients that are new in the pipeline for prospective clients, any ties to Russian ownership, we would basically push the business away at this moment. That decision been made, and I'm sure other banks are doing that same type of mentality to ensure that the risk is not worth the reward at this current time. Let's talk a little bit about the specific methods and tools that you, in this regulatory space, with this level of OFAC regime pressing down on you, typically use to ensure compliance during times like these, Mark? Go, go through some of those common methods and tools for us. Yeah, first and foremost, from the banking side, we would re definitely re-examine our policy procedures, in particular our restricted country list, to ensure that Russia and Ukraine and some of the allies of Russia, like Belarus and uh, maybe China, are, on, are considered high on the risk rating portfolio, as well as transactional monitoring as well to make sure those countries for any transactions touch on those would be flagged immediately for any internal review. And then, as I mentioned, I am responsible for uh, program manager FinTech, so third-party oversight. We need to ensure that their transactions are not going to be touching those payment processing countries of mention. And in particular, making sure their policy and procedures are in line with health and commercial banks as well. Is most of this software-based? Well, it's software and policy procedures-based. So software systems certainly need to be updated and reflective that these uh, countries are being flagged correctly. And then internally, policy and procedures need to be reflected, escalated to senior management, and of course, presented to the board officially as well. So I would gather that uh, David and Mark, you have a, a close affinity and good working relationship with your respective IS departments at your organizations. But I want to go back to Peter for a moment. In a broad way, Peter, what 
is the impact that this is having in the financial services industry. We've heard now from two people with boots on the ground in the day-to-day operations of a bank talking to us about literally the sanctions were ratcheted up to a level that it could the, the risk tolerance was so great you could no longer do business with entities and individuals from these particular countries. That's got to have an impact. What's the impact, Peter? Just imagine what would happen if a flow of transactions and financial transfers come to a dead stop, not only for one person, one company, but for an entire country. So as you heard from what David and Mark said, if they are making the decision to cut off the wherewithal to send or receive money, anything associated with Russia, and this is not only David and Mark, you could think about all the compliance officer at all the U.S. institutions that are facing this coming from OFAC. If the entire country is cut off from the financial space where you could send or receive money, that they pretty much ensures that your economy, your your activities will come to it that stop. The only thing that you could rely on is transactions within the country and transactions with folks that are not abiding by the OFAC countries. And and there's not that many countries that are are not following OFAC and other regulatory regimes guidance. But it basically means that the, the country and the folks that are on the OFAC sanctions list are no longer able to send or receive money. And that pretty much means that your economic activities are coming to a dead stop. We heard a lot, Peter, about Russia being removed from SWIFT and what that meant in terms of international finance. We're talking a lot about the domestic impact, but this is really a global phenomenon that's going on right now. Speak a little bit to the SWIFT removal. SWIFT is, uh, in the simpler terms, a a way that institutions and parties belonging to SWIFT can exchange information to do transactions with each other and also send money to and fro uh, each other across different country and other boundaries. It's a broader uh, system than what the U.S. would do to send money to each other through the Fed system. During my time at the Federal Reserve, we saw a broad network of institutions within the U.S. sending money to each other. SWIFT is a global system of exchanging information and also transfer of funds. So. If you are removed from the SWIFT system, that means that you will not be able to participate in international uh, business dealings. So if you're sending or receiving funds via ship through commerce, or you're sending coal or gas or oil, and you're sending it to another country and receiving the money, the way that you could exchange information, the way that you could do the deal, and the way you could send money and receive money, it's through SWIFT. So if you're cut off from SWIFT, that means that you will not be able to do business and send or receive money. So again, this is a way to uh, essentially cut off a country from doing business with the world's economy at large. David, I want to go back to you because this podcast is called The Presumption of Innocence, right? That the legal authority to act, that people have the right to due process, How do you get your arms around the legal authority to block or reject these transactions that are constantly evolving in your day-to-day world? 
Yeah, so we continue to use the term unprecedented because when this first started to roll out, OFAC blocked, for instance, BTB Bank, which is one of the Russian banks. And so if a transaction related to that bank came through our system, we'd have to block that transaction. And the legal authority would be Executive Order 14024. However, Spurbank, which is Russia's largest bank, at that particular time when these sanctions started to roll out, and specifically about the wind-down period, Spurbank was really just a rejection. It was not a blocked asset. So, you know, what identifies Spurbank, you wouldn't seize those funds. You would still report to OFAC via the rejection form, but you wouldn't seize the funds. That's since changed this week. Of course, Burbank is now fully a blockable asset. So when you're trying to execute an understanding a transaction that's under review because your filtering software alerted you to it, you need to make sure that you're identifying the, the legal authority, the executive order that requires you to either block or reject that particular transaction or do so it may be a, a false positive. Mark, I'd imagine in the position that you hold at Metropolitan Commercial Bank and like David, you have a tremendous new obligation. How do you ensure that your training program for various employees that are working in the compliance apparatus stays current? Where I sit, one of the, the best ways to ensure regulatory compliance for an institution is through demonstrating that you have a reasonable compliance program that includes education to your entire organization. And that often holds you in good stead when the regulator comes knocking, you can point to that compliance program. But when you're in this rapidly evolving environment from these sanctions regimes, how exactly do you pull that off? Well, that's a good point, Matt. Since many financial institutions like banks rely on third-party vendors to perform their training, we have taken a, a positive approach to do in-house targeted training with a, a presentation deck that's current and impactful and educational, not just for employees of the immediate compliance team, but certain departments like the operations team, the sales team, and of course, senior management and the board. So. Everyone is well-equipped the tools, the knowledge, the understanding of what these OFAC relationships are occurring on a day-to-day -day basis. So we are very pro proactive on understanding the risks involved, but also going to another level, how uh, the money cannot be moved out of Russia. What other methods or transfer can be done, like crypto? Many of the Russians are using crypto these days to mass transactions. And we have seen a lot of transactions could go through the dark market where the monies you do not see are being done behind OFAC. And thirdly, we also see a lot of investments of the last few months in real estate in countries outside Russia, where a lot of the Russians, oligarchs, and, and very senior people who have a lot of money, they need to invest the money and mask it and hide it because we feel that this uh, war is going to go on for quite some time. Hey, Matt, so to Mark's point, sanctions evasion is a huge problem now. So 
FinCEN recently sent out an advisory advising of the different red flags associated with sanctions evasion, because now that's the bigger concern is specific. When you look at North Korea, they really have a, a good idea of how to avoid sanctions through shell companies and things like that. FinCEN's trying to drum up compliance officers to understand these other avenues that are specific to cryptocurrency. They're sanctioning several of the virtual exchanges that are over in Estonia and operating out of Moscow. And so those are other avenues that Russia can use to maintain some kind of economic standing. And so now in my seat and in Mark's seat, we got to pay more attention to areas like Cyprus who are close to Russia. There could be several shell companies that are operating there that are state-owned. And so that's another concern that we have to worry about these days. Fascinating stuff. And it certainly complicates your day-to-day lives. Peter, I want to come back to you. And we've talked perhaps at a 30,000 foot level of the impact on the broader global economy from the sanction regimes that have flowed from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We've talked about practically what that means in the day-to-day life of guys like David and Mark, who are actually carrying this out. You really are the front line of this policy in, in implementing. But I want to go back to Peter, and I want you to just explain for our audience a little bit about what happens when an individual or entity is determined to be sanctioned and subject to the OFAC sanction program. What actually happens and how is that carried out in real time? So I'll respond in two ways. So let's say you were the the sanctioned person and you are now finding yourself on the OFAC sanctions list. That pretty much means that you will not be able to open up an account with any of the financial institutions. You will not be able to send any money to uh, anywhere using any of the U.S. uh, financial institution pipes. And you will not be able to fly because you will be on the OFAC sanctions list. So you're basically being separated from all things that we hold near and dear as a free, freedom-loving country. Being on the OFAC sanctions list is not some place you want to be. Now, from the other side, from a financial institution, if that person is on the list, and the way that you would discover whether the person is on the sanctions list, and as David and Mark said, the updates are daily, and the number of en- entries are enormous. The only way you could do this is using the financial services and the software systems that will monitor looking at accounts and transactions. Once you're on it, once you become a sanctioned person, will at that point be dealt with. So people like David and Mark will find that if Peter Kim was on the sanctions list tomorrow, my account will not be available to me and will be dealt with. And whether following instructions from OFAC, that account needs to be blocked or ultimately rejected or sent over to the OFAC administration. Basically, if you're on the OFAC sanctions list, you're having a really bad day. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd imagine you are. David, all this begs the question, you got somebody that pops up on the OFAC sanctions list. How do you freeze their assets? And what happens when they want their money and challenge your actions? Yeah, thanks, Matt. So 
OFAC really has one rule. It's the 50% rule. And so sometimes there gets to be situations where you've identified an SDN, maybe in the back of a company, maybe a beneficial owner of some sort, maybe a board of director or president of a company. So they're not necessarily in the transaction, but through your investigation, you believe that they have enough control of that company to meet that 50% rule. So you make that risk-based decision to block those funds. Is it that person or that company believes that you did that not appropriately, or you didn't have the proper legal authority, they can contest that, but they have to go through OFAC. So any compliance officer is not going to release any funds because somebody calls the phone and starts crying about it. They're going to only do what OFAC tells them to do once they make that decision to seize those funds. There is a, a, a hotline that a compliance officer can, control, can call to essentially talk to OFAC to see if they can give any appropriate guidance. But the only other avenue to release those funds is if they somehow become not an SDN any longer, or if OFAC provides a specific license that advises you that you can release those funds. Where do you put them once you seize them? So when you seize funds, you're obligated to put them in an interest-bearing suspense account. So typically at my institution, we'll put them in a interest-bearing GL or an account that we have a couple accounts that we don't operate out of. It's essentially meant for when we hold funds. It's the same thing that we would do. It's not interest-bearing, but if you're holding a transaction for a couple of days because you're looking into it, you're going to move it into a special account so that way everything reconciles at the end of the night. Excellent. Mark? In your day-to-day life, when you have to flag somebody who's on this sanctions list and essentially, as Peter said, deal with the account, what's the type of things you're hearing? We do, I don't want to say it happens every day, but we do sometimes get positive hits or sort of positive hits. So the, the OFAC team basically works in conjunction and there's a, usually a standalone team. They review it, then they want to make sure that the individual's name actually do match. Sometimes from a day-to-day operations, there might be a name that's very similar. We just need to get additional information like a date of birth or a middle name to make sure that concurrent, that's the same individual. To add to what Peter has said, not only having a bad date, but once your name is on the list, it's very hard to remove it. That's the most difficult part of being on the OPEC list. 99% of the time, that name usually sits there for indefinitely. But from the day-to-day, having someone's name on that list is extremely crucial in financial transactions. Also, from a geopolitical point of view, as well as uh, reputational for that individual. So I believe the only time you could fall off that list is when you are deceased. But it's a tough list to be on. But making sure the OFAC program has become quite essential and quite important over the last uh, number of years, especially now. Shoot first, ask questions later, it seems to me. Yeah, look at it this way. At least we're shooting financial bullets. The the other thing that the White House has decided not to do is uh, put boots on the ground and go to war in geographic area. And you could look at OFAC sanction as a tough thing to impose on a, a regime or individuals. But this is the economic warfare that's available to the White House, short of going to war. So as tough as these measures are, the alternatives are so much worse. 
Well said, Peter. Mark, I want to finish with one additional transition in, in the day-to-day world of working as a compliance officer in a bank. Since the regime has gone into place, I would imagine you've had a lot longer days. And what kind of additional technology resources are having to be brought to bear in light of what we're experiencing? From a day-to-day operation, from the OFAC systems point of view, we got to make sure that the systems are actually being flagged for the actual accurate names that FinCEN keeps sending these advisories. So what we have implemented is a 4i approach where we have those names on the list and we want to make sure the systems actually fairly capture the names correctly. So we do have an in-house quality assurance person who validates and checks those names are and in fact, being flagged in the system. So this is basically uh, quality assurance at its best related to OFAC. And I'd imagine, David, this is on the incoming and the outgoing side from your financial institution perspective, correct? Yeah, correct. So in our institution, our filtering software updates every single night. So whatever updates come during the day, they get updated at night. What we do is within 24 or 48 hours, we check to ensure those names actually got captured within our system. And then on a quarterly basis, we actually create dummy wire files with test names and banks on them and, and route them through our system to see if they flag. So I'm not sure. I think for me, it, it's reading what's going on and, and staying abreast of the different situations because at the time we have a true hit, my team is going to ultimately come to me to make that decision about blocking or rejecting those funds. And to the earlier discussion about the decision to, to, to seize funds and put them in a suspense account, it's a big decision. There's a lot of weight on your shoulders because you got to make sure you're right. Because if you're not right, you're holding somebody's funds that you shouldn't or you don't have the legal authority to. So there's a lot of weight on compliance officers' shoulders. It's really a stressful time, I would say for us, but I would say most banks, if not all banks, they have an OFAC framework. It's there to make sure that we account for these types of changes. So changes in the sanction environment, it's not a new thing. I think it's just the amount of changes, the amount of sectors that are being brought in, the amount of banks, a lot of different situations that are going on in this specific targeted sanction at, at Russia, but our filtering software is what we rely on. And I think I'm fortunate in my institution because we recently replaced ours last year. So we just went through a a whole slew of testing to make sure that the system was operating effectively. And so we might've got lucky with this situation. Hey, better to be lucky than good sometimes. The the timing of that seems fairly fortuitous. Oh yeah, I'm pretty happy about it because the system is a lot easier to use. We probably would be expanding a lot more resources if we were on the other system. And honestly, our OFAC framework has a manual aspect to it because we do batch screening every night on our, our customer accounts and our loan portfolio and things like that. We have the live wire screening for when wires are coming in in a live environment, but we also have other areas within our bank that we have to ensure OFAC compliance. And so we have software that we use for what I would say a manual search to ensure that they're also not OFAC entities. So it's a multi-prong approach. The margin for error, gentlemen, is razor thin in this environment. And I think 
from my seat, I can see a whole avenue opening up for situations where people inadvertently find themselves on the receiving end of one of these regimes and they may not they want to may want to try to figure out why they're there and if they can challenge it and i think that's probably where the next legal step is headed as we experience this unprecedented sanctions response to the russian invasion of ukraine we're at the end of our time together today i can't thank you all enough for joining us on the presumption of innocence and we'll see you next time